Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Okay, welcome to part three of genetic diversity in the extinction of the human microbiome. In part one and part two, we talked about a lot of very interesting and important information. So if you haven't yet, please check out those episodes. Remember last time we talked about the biggest contributor to the extinction of the human microbiome being antibiotics. And while the antibiotics that we use in our clinics and our hospitals contribute to this, they're actually a small part of the overall puzzle. In fact, 70% of the antibiotics that we use are actually given to animals to make them bigger and prevent them from getting bacterial infections in the crowded, unsanitary conditions that we often raise them in in conventional agriculture. Something that's crazy is that as we humans are consuming more antibiotics in our food, we also seem to be getting much larger. And when we look at humans in the developed world where these practices are much more common, we are just much bigger than our counterparts in the developing world, and particularly people who are living full ancestral lifestyles. Say, for instance, uh, indigenous peoples in the rainforests of the Amazon and, and other in people living indigenous lifestyles in Africa and stuff. The other part of that puzzle is the pesticide glyphosate, which is sprayed all over our crops and can be found as a residue all over our food and grocery stores. And remember, glyphosate is also an antibiotic. In 2011, Monsanto patented it as such. So the antibiotics in the tissues of our meat and the antibiotics sprayed on our plants that we then consume are the biggest contributors to the extinction of the human microbiome, among other factors that were discussed in part two. When we look at civilizations that are more ancestral, that don't live modern lifestyles, what we find is that they have a much larger diversity of organisms than those who are living and raised and and spending time in the developed world. And on top of that, we also notice a paucity of many of the inflammatory diseases and rheumatologic diseases that we see in the Western world in these more ancestral populations. Basically, they just don't have diseases like asthma and eczema and rheumatoid arthritis and lupus these things are just exceptionally, exceptionally, exceptionally rare for these groups of people. And that really gives us a window into our past and, and 
represents important information, it's probable that on Earth there's no one who is fully removed from the things that kill our microbiome on Earth today. And for that reason, it's really only that ancient poop or those coprolites that can really tell us the full robust the full robustness of what used to be our human microbiome. Remember we talked about the origins of any human or other species microbiome coming from the generation that preceded them? So we essentially get our microbiome from our parents. And in reality, we share our microbiome with everyone around us. Remember that if the people around you are obese, you are more likely to be obese. If the people around you have diabetes, you are more likely to have diabetes. Even if the people around you have mental health diseases, you are more likely to have mental health diseases. And part of that is lifestyle choices. I'm sure what you eat, how much you exercise. Part of that is related to mood being contagious. You know, if everyone around you is calm, you're going to be more calm. If everyone's angry, you may get angry. If people are happy and having a good time, you're more likely to have a good time. But part of that is probably also due to the microorganisms that we all carry and share. This is probably too much information, but when I go to rural hospitals and I live in them for a week at a time, I notice a deterioration in my stool. And I literally think what's happening is that I pick up the bad bacteria from from the sick patients that I take care of in the hospital and I hope that they get to grab some of the healthier bacteria that I that I give off to make themselves more well. And you know, to take that even a step further, it seems to always happen no matter how much protection protective equipment I use and no matter how much I wash my hands, if there's a lot of GI stuff going on on the floor, I am very likely to develop some sort of GI issue over the course of my hospital week or two. And so I literally feel this happen in real time when I'm in the unhealthy environment of the hospital versus when I'm living at home. And scientists have even proven some of what I'm saying. We have what are called germ-free mice that we can do experiments on. And germ-free mice are essentially bred such that they have no microbiome. They are just the mouse without any microorganisms that would normally cover the entire mouse as their holobiont. And what smart people have done with experiments is is simple and profound. They have taken these germ-free mice and given them stool to ingest from obese humans and thin thin humans. And when you give a germ-free mouse stool from an obese or, or overweight person, that mouse will become obese just from being fed the stool from an obese person. When you feed that same mouse or, or one of its uh, peer mice that has the exact same genetics and was brought up in the exact same environment, a skinny person's stool, that mouse will be skinny. This is crazy stuff.
Now, something that a lot of people who have noticed that work with germ-free mice is they, they act kind of funny. And I will say, as an aside, I spent a year working in a laboratory that that worked with mice and did experiments on mice, and I absolutely hated it because I really love animals, and I do feel like part of my soul died as a result of this job. But I needed the research experience, and it seemed interesting, but it turned out to just be a nightmare. But I do realize why this research is important and people have to do it. But essentially, germ-free mice act funny. They almost have an autistic phenotype. Basically, they don't really interact well with other mice. And they kind of walk funny. They're essentially almost autistic. So these mice with no microbiome have an autistic phenotype. Let's go back for a second and look at glyphosate And then let's look at the epidemiology of autism in the United States, according to the CDC. So in 1996 was the year Roundup Ready crops were introduced. And in this year, we saw the first explosion in the use of glyphosate. Now, for those people born in the United States in 1992 and 1994, about 1 in 150 kids had autism. For those kids born in 1996, the year that Roundup Ready crops were invented, we see that number jump from 1 in 150 kids to 1 in 125 kids. So a pretty significant jump. Now, fast forward to 2006. The year we see Roundup sprayed on wheat as a desiccant to dry crops. We see that number jump. And granted, it kind of ticked up slowly over the 2000s because of the increased use of, of, uh, well, I can't say because of the increased use of GMO crops, but in correlation with the increased use of Roundup Ready crops. And then in 2006, when another explosion of glyphosate happens, we see that number jump to 1 in 59 kids. And in 2008, the last year I, I have data reported on from, from the CDC website right now, you see 1 in 54 kids now has autism. So we've literally gone from 1 in 150 kids with autism prior to the, the wide-scale and broad and copious use of glyphosate to 1 in 54 kids having autism, and that number seems to continue to rise. When you think about a germ-free mouse having a a phenotypic appearance of, of almost having autism, and when you look at the rise in autism in correlation with the rise in something that we spray directly on our food that is a known antibiotic, that is scary. That needs to be looked into, and it is alarming to me that our government did not jump on this a lot sooner and has been so slow to be protective and cautious with the citizens of the United States and been so quick to support giant companies like Monsanto, even when other developed nations like the European Union 
have greatly cut back on on the allowance of, of glyphosate. Still not to the degree necessary, but quite a bit. Now remember, for a long time, people were blaming autism on the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. And this was a really dangerous thing to do because the childhood vaccine schedule that we utilize in the United States literally protects our children from a number of extremely harmful and dangerous diseases that now essentially in many instances almost don't exist. And so attacking that vaccine schedule is something that should be done with great caution because the benefit has been clear over the 50 plus years that we've used most of these vaccines. But they ended up attacking the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine particularly, saying that that had led to the increase in autism. Here's the problem, people. The measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine was created in 1971. Essentially, 20 years before we started to see a significant uptick in the rates of autism. And so if measles, mumps, and rubella was in fact the trigger for more autism, we should have seen this signal start to go up 20 years before it did. So why are we blaming something that was around for 20 years for causing more autism when it doesn't correlate with when the numbers started to increase? I mean, for instance, if you're trying to solve a crime, the first thing you want to figure out is, was the suspect in the right place at the right time? Measles, mumps, and rubella was not in the right time. So it is not your suspect. So why are we attacking that? We're only doing the, the, the real potential causes a favor by diverting our attention away from them. If we want to look at something that actually correlates perfectly with the rise in autism, we need to be looking at glyphosate use. And given the fact that it is a known antibiotic and patented as such, gives a plausible reason, particularly in 2021, now that we know that the microbiome is essential for our health. So pretty pathetic that people went after that vaccine. And that we had to do such giant studies to prove to ourselves that that was not the cause of, of increasing amounts of autism because it just didn't make any sense from the first place. It wasn't at the right time. There was no correlation from the get-go, and so it shouldn't have even been considered as a potential. Just a crazy aside that, that I thought needed to be discussed when we're discussing autism. All right, something else essential to the health of our microbiome is fiber. And essentially, the microbes in our gut will ferment indigestible foods like fiber into short-chain fatty acids. And remember, a fatty acid is a long chain of carbon molecules with a carboxylic acid functional group at the end of it. We see important fatty acids all throughout human biology, but these microbial organisms actually ferment these fibers to what are called short-chain fatty acids, or fatty acids with less than six carbons on them. And the most abundant short-chain fatty acids are acetate, propionate, and butyrate. 
that's acetate, propionate, and butyrate. And these short-chain fatty acids are actually the main energy source for colonocytes, or the cells that line the inside of our colon. And so for that reason, both having the microbes that can ferment these fiber molecules and getting fiber in the diet are essential for giving your colon the correct type of energy and what it needs. And so you can imagine that a diet that is low in fiber could potentially, uh, or at least theoretically, increase the risk of colon cancer. And what we've essentially, what we've seen over the last, you know, several decades is a marked reduction in the amount of fiber that we eat as a result of the standard American diet or SAD diet. And what we've also seen over this time period is a massive increase in the amount of colon cancer. In fact, butyrate, one of the short-term fatty acids, may be the most important food for the colonocytes and may also have anti-cancer activity. So getting your fiber may not only be good for your health and digestion, but it may help you prevent cancer. We've got to get behind healthy diets. They are essential for health. It's recommended that children get between 19 and 25 grams of fiber per day, that women get about 26 grams of fiber a day, and men get about 38 grams of fiber per day. And unfortunately, it's estimated that only about 5% of people in America are meeting those daily recommendations. So we are not getting enough fiber in our food at all. So fiber is essentially a prebiotic. It feeds our microbiome and through uh, the sharing ecology of a holobiont feeds our colonocytes or the cells of our colon as well. And so fiber is a great example of a good prebiotic. Now there's also probiotics. And probiotics are actually the beneficial organisms themselves. And there's just thousands of, of beneficial organisms. And so when you look at our probiotics that you see on the shelf, they're just extremely primitive, even in 2021. I mean, some of them have one strain, some have 10 strains. You know, you see some with even even a lot more strains, but still it pales in comparison compared to the amount of bacteria in, say, uh, stool or fecal matter or poop from a healthy human donor. Or ideally, shoot, a human donor from 500 or 1,000 years ago. But some good bacteria examples are Lactobacillus, Bifidiobacterium, and these are genuses of bacteria, so each one of these might contain lots of species. Um, the, the yeast species, Saccharomyces boulidari, seems to be very helpful, and in kids we often give that to, the, to them when they have C. difficile. Some other spore-based uh, bacilli are, are really good as well. And people take a number of different types of probiotics. I think probiotics um, are somewhat individualized for, for the individual person, and so there's probably not one great probiotic for everyone. And by that same token, there's, there's probably not just one healthy microbiome. There's probably lots of different combinations of organisms that can be healthy for, for any given person. And so I don't know that there's one perfect 
perfect set of bacteria, but there's certainly bacteria that are associated with good things and other ones that are associated with bad things. One thing that's really important to understand and know is that if you take a probiotic orally, it, it it's essentially uh, or usually that probiotic is, is is supposed to go all the way to your colon and then populate your colon. And in fact, most of the bacteria in your gut are actually in your colon, which is the distal part of your intestine known as the the large intestine. And so the, the worry is that a lot of probiotics don't quite make it out through the stomach or don't make it through the small intestines. And so there is uh, definitely a hierarchy of probiotics, and I'm not here to discuss that exactly, but I think some of them are probably much more useful than others. One really interesting probiotic is Bifidiobacterium infantis. And it's interesting because it's it's directed at newborn babies and two because it's got some of the best research that I've seen regarding probiotics. So essentially some babies are colicky, they cry a lot, they get more rashes, they have sleep problems, they have reflux, they're fussy, and and they develop asthma and allergies and eczema. And a lot of a lot of the classical thinking thinking was just that, you know, these were just unlucky babies and these things just happen. But the problem with that thinking is like we said, a lot of these more indigenous societies don't even see inflammatory diseases like eczema, asthma, and allergies. And then on top of that, they tend to have less colicky babies and, and, and less fussiness. You just don't see that so much. Like when I'm walking around in Latin America, I see babies just like strapped to their mothers and they seem to be relaxed all day. They're not just freaking out all the time. And it's probably not so much due to having a lucky or unlucky baby, but more due to the health of that baby's microbiome. And in fact, a deficiency in good bacteria in in baby's gut has been linked to all of the problems I just mentioned. One of the most important bacteria for newborn babies is Bifidiobacterium infantis. Bifidiobacterium are gram-positive Y-shaped bacteria, and infantis typically makes up 40 to 80% of the newborn gut microbiota. And it is just so important to the immune development of newborn babies. And it helps them balance their immune response, reduce inflammation, and improves the the integrity of their intestinal barrier by increasing the amount of acetate, one of the short-chain fatty acids we just mentioned. One of the most important foods for Bifidiobacterium infantis is actually breast milk. And breast milk contains human milk oligosaccharides, or HMOs. You may see some of these advertised on baby formula sometimes, uh, but I think they're a little more complex and and probably the only way to get the, the full-on real spectrum of HMOs is in real best breast milk. But formula companies are trying to improve this. But these HMOs are metabolized by Bifidiobacterium infantis, uh, and they actually cause an acidification in the gut that prevents pathogenic bacteria. But there's some companies now that are that are making probiotics for infants and there's some actually great research studies out now showing that you can give a newborn baby 
a month of these probiotics and if you continue to feed them breast milk throughout their newborn period, say a year, they can continue to be colonized with bifidobacterium for up to a full year, which is pretty crazy because all most all other probiotic uh, research shows that as soon as you stop taking the probiotic, usually those species start to fall off pretty quickly, whereas bifidobacterium infantis seem to be sustained in these newborns. One really alarming thing is that while, like I said, historically, 40 to 80 percent of the newborn gut uh, was was made up of B infantis, in modern times, these numbers are, are much lower. And in certain populations, it almost appears to be extinct. And that seems to be a big problem. So we really need to start to understand this whole microbiome puzzle because it, it, it seems to affect the pathogenesis of disease when we can alter it in beneficial ways, like giving a newborn baby that was born via C-section a month or two of Bifidiobacterium infantis to properly colonize their guts. And that may also save us from having to do <laughs> rectal seeding, as I mentioned in the in the last episode, where when a baby's born by C-section, you might take a swab of, of, of mom's rectum and, and rub it on the baby's face and mouth in order to properly seed the gut. That sounds like a crazy joke, but I, but I promise a lot of smart people have thought about that. And um, while that's not a thing, vaginal seeding or rubbing the mom's vaginal uh, fluid on the baby's face is is already a thing. All right, I want to finish with a smattering of facts that I couldn't uh, couldn't really fit in anywhere else but I thought they were good enough to mention. The first thing is that acid reflux, diarrhea, and nausea are all symptoms that, if people have them, are associated with a low microbiome diversity. So again, these problems that people are having that nobody can answer may and oftentimes seem to be due or at least correlated with problems with the microbiome, either low diversity or or the wrong organisms, dysbiosis, bad things growing in your gut that shouldn't be. Sugary drinks are, no surprise, also bad. Um, eating, eating refined sugars all the time does not appear to be very good for our gut's health. In contrast, fermented foods appear, appear to be very important for gut health. Remember that that bacteria in our gut actually ferment fiber to make short-chain fatty acids. And it seems like already fermented foods appear to be appear to be very healthy. So things like kimchi, sauerkraut, tempeh, yogurt, and kombucha all appear to be to be very healthy and good. And even even uh, beer proponents will tell you that that beer is very uh, healthy too. And perhaps in moderation, it's it's not such a bad thing, particularly some types of beer. But again, fermented foods like kimchi, sauerkraut, tempeh, and yogurt and kombucha appear to be a very good gut uh, gut remedies, good things for your gut. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. Pew!
When I was 13 years old, I got a staph infection in my hip, essentially osteomyelitis, and I had to go on antibiotics for I think six weeks or something. And I think I went on oxacillin or some other 24-7 penicillin because I had to carry around a little fanny pack with me that constantly infused antibiotics through a pick line. Now, prior to this infection and these antibiotics, I had pretty bad eczema all throughout being a baby and as a child and even as a young teenager. I had pretty bad eczema on my hands that was just essentially always there. But when I started these antibiotics, I noticed a, a week or two in that the eczema on my hands completely resolved for the first time in my life. And it was at that, that point that I realized that something very unusual was going on. And I knew that, that eczema wasn't supposedly a, a bacterial infection, but it was very strange to me how that that cured my disease when when you know all the steroid creams while they would help never actually made it go away completely and that brings me to the point that the microbiome or the or the small microbial cells in our gut actually modulate our immune system they're essential to immune cell recruitment and differentiation and they help educate our immune system while we're growing up and learning about our world in fact, 70% of all the immune cells in our bodies are located in our gut. And so I think having a good, healthy microbiome early in life is really important for instructing our bodies on, on how to live and how to react to, to different things in our environment for, for the rest of our life. The microbes in our gut are also important for breaking things down that our bodies often can't break down, like certain types of polysaccharides and polyphenols. But it's also important for building things that our bodies often can't make. Things like vitamin K, various types of B vitamins, and other essential molecules and essential fatty acids and things. And so our, 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 our microbes in our gut actually make and share with us some really essential molecules that, that without them and, and without eating them in our diet, we would have absolutely no access to. On top of important vitamins and things, they also can produce hormones and neurotransmitters that can affect our brain and mood. And so you can see that, that a healthy microbiome might be really, really good and, and make a bunch of things you need, break down a bunch of things you need, help modulate neurotransmitters and stuff like that. But a bad microbiome could make bad things, and in fact, they do. For instance, they can make too much of, of different types of, of chemical compounds called polyamines, like putrescine and cadaverine, which can literally uh, are, are part of, obviously, cadavers and things, and, and too much of it is not, not good for the body. You can have overgrowth of things like Clostridium difficile species, species that actually make to toxins like C. diff toxin that can cause diarrhea and other problems. And interestingly about C. diff, it's a, a bacteria that tends to live in, in, in a lot of our guts. And when we take antibiotics and, and free up a lot of the real estate around us, it starts to bloom and, and, and spread and multiply. And that's when it kind of becomes a problem. And for a long time, we used um, medications like metronidazole or oral vancomycin to target it after after it kind of grew following a course of antibiotics. 
but in, in some really interesting randomized controlled trials, we looked at giving people healthy donor stool versus antibiotics for Clostridium difficile, and we actually had to stop those studies because the stool works so much better for so many people with refractory C. diff. What's interesting is that we're still not regularly giving people stool transplants, even though we know it's so much better. But I think eventually that will come around and be a thing. And I know some hospitals and, and there are pharmaceutical companies working on and doing that. So really interesting science. Another interesting thing is, is um, breaking down things that can potentially be toxic to our bodies. For instance, a bacteria, Oxalobacter formigans, metabolizes oxalate and has become a lot less common in our microbiome in recent years. And, and, and for that reason, some scientists have, have postulated that this may be one of the reasons we're seeing a lot of increased kidney stones. And if you've had a kidney stone, you know that's painful. And so you'd probably be interested in getting some oxalobacter formigans back. Wouldn't it be interesting if we started treating people with recurrent kidney stones with, with a probiotic with with certain types of bacteria that could, could help reduce those molecules like oxalate that lead to more stones. Really, there's just a lot of absolutely fascinating stuff. And these microbes in our body are making things. They're breaking things down. They're complementing our bodies. They're educating our immune system. And they're doing lots of, of important things. And really, our knowledge of those important things is just scratching the surface. This is a really complex space. Tens of thousands of organisms, an order of mag or a thousand times as many genes as that. And so just a lot of information and data to to tie and crunch. And just looking at our own cells and how complex they are is a really big question that I think we're still um, very early on in understanding. And so when you add in the complexity of all these bacteria, you start to realize, wow, we are this amazing ecosystem. And we should not be messing with this ecosystem because we're learning that it is quite important. At the end of the day, I think the lessons are the same as they've been for a lot of the podcasts, and that is a healthy environment is absolutely essential to our health, and not even just a healthy environment, but a diverse environment. We need to be around lots of different types of life and lots of different types of produce and food. We need to be in natural environments exposed to the soil and outside. That stuff is all so healthy to us. And what you see when you get into an airplane is you just see field after field of monocrops. Corn, wheat, soy, with with no no pollinator habitats, no no forest habitats mixed in, just field after field. And it, it's really sad because the way that we are are structuring our world and growing our crops and, and designing our cities is just not conducive to human health and we really need to take take a better look at what things we can do to make our world more habitable for all creatures all life on earth try to increase the biodiversity because that biodiversity is not just beautiful it's not just interesting it's not just fun to be around it's a reflection of the biodiversity in our own bodies and and our own health and so i think the era of of looking at people as a body and and nothing else need to go away. We are truly an ecosystem, a holobiont, and we need to understand that holobiont in order to improve our health. 
Now, as we start to step off of this planet, planet Earth, and, and try to colonize other worlds and places like the Moon and Mars, we're really going to want to understand this equation well because it's probable that, that the space environment and other planets are going to be even more sterile than Earth. And we need to learn how to create much more habitable environments for a diverse array of species, not just our own cells, but all of our little friends too. So this has been genetic diversity in the extinction of the human microbiome. Genetic diversity is a really good thing. Having a diverse microbiome is also a really good thing. And I hope this really inspired people to think a lot about this subject. It's absolutely fascinating. So please eat your organic fruits and vegetables. Eat your grass-fed, grass-finished beef, your free-range chickens, and your wild-caught fish. And try to stay away from antibiotics if you don't absolutely need them. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now, today, become the best possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye.